Welcome to the Bayshore Podcast. As listeners each week, whether through iTunes or through the church app, you're part of our church family. We would love for you to share stories of how Bayshore is impacting your life by sending us an email at amen at bayshorecc.org. As always, you can find all kinds of information and content on our website, bayshorecc.org. There's also our church app, which you could download by going to bayshorecc.org slash app. So thanks again for joining us this week, and we hope that today's message is a blessing to you. Okay, we are working on the book of Acts, and we are learning so much about this great book, and we're finding principles in it to help us in our life. And as Jeremy mentioned earlier, we're coming toward the end of uh, the book of Acts. We'll be finishing that this summer and uh, just really uh, enjoying this study. And uh, we want to welcome everybody that's listening online. We have hundreds and hundreds of people that listen to us online. Facebook Live has between 700 and 1,000 people every week that listen to us. So thank you, uh, those of you that are listening on Facebook and those of listening to the podcast. Welcome to today, today's service. We are uh, looking at uh, Acts chapter, primarily Acts chapter 25 and Acts chapter 26 today. We have in this section of scripture... We have uh, uh, the transition of one governor to another governor. Uh, Rome appointed governors to oversee Judea, and uh, they were called governors or procurators. So these governors have been uh, residing. They reside actually in a place called Caesarea. I think we have a map here of uh, Caesarea. Okay, so Jerusalem is a big uh, you know, that's the big center in the Bible. We always talk about Jerusalem, where David was king and all that. But in, in Jesus' time and Paul's time, uh, the Romans, who really, the big kahunas that ruled uh, the area, did not reside in Jerusalem, but they just resided in Caesarea. And you can see that Caesarea is on the coast, so it's a beach town. I've been to Caesarea. Some of you maybe that have been to Israel have been to Caesarea. Caesarea is called Caesarea because it sounds like Caesar. And it was built by uh, Herod the Great. Herod the Great uh, was trying to always win brownie points with Caesar Augustus. So he built this city and named it Caesarea in honor of Caesar Augustus. And so this is where the uh, Romans stayed. The Roman, the governor, the, the governor of, 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 of Judea, all the big kahunas stayed in Caesarea. It's about 70 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and so that's where they hung out. Here's a picture of Caesarea, just a little picture. This is the amphitheater. Uh, I think we have a picture of the amphitheater. And you can see it's on the coast, uh, and there's lots of stuff. There's a big aqueduct out this way. So it's a beautiful place. And so the Romans, they were going to live in dusty old Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem. It was not where they were going to be. So they lived in Caesarea, and they only went to Jerusalem when they had to. And if there was a big uh, feast going on, where a lot of pilgrims would be coming to Jerusalem. And then they would go in, they would stay in the, Herod, uh, the fortress of Antonia, uh, and that's where they were. So we have, a, we have a new governor. Last week we learned about, uh, Jeremy did a wonderful job uh, talking about Felix, the governor, who Paul was, Paul was staying in Caesarea. He was held in Caesarea, uh, and uh, he had been transferred there by the Roman officials and taken to Caesarea. And he's under this governor by the name of Felix. And Felix is a uh, really, really not a good guy. You know, uh, he, was, he, was, he was very mean to the Jewish people. In fact, he kind of led to the Roman revolt that came in 66 AD. 
And so uh, Felix was this kind of overbearing, unwise leader, and he was just not a cool guy. He was not really good at all. In fact, he was basically deposed from his position. There was a riot in Caesarea between the Greeks and the Jewish people, and he used this ruthless force to put down the Jewish people. So he has this, he has this, bad, this bad relationship with the Jewish people. So his name is Felix. So Felix is kicked out of office, and a new governor by the name of Festus comes in. Now, here's a picture of uh, Felix and Festus. I want to put them on the screen here. Felix and Festus, we have a picture of these two guys here, I think. Uh, we don't have those pictures. There's a picture of, oh, there they go. So this is Felix. <laughs> How many remember Felix Unger from The Odd Couple? Remember that? How many are old enough to remember The Odd Couple? You remember The Odd Couple? Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. So you got, you got Felix, and then this is Festus, and Festus was in the, uh, the movie or the, the show Gunsmoke. So the new guy is Festus. Now, Festus is a smarter guy. He's smarter than, than Felix because Festus knows he has to be sensitive to the Jewish people. And so let's look at, let me just read a little bit. What's the first thing he does when, when uh, Festus becomes, when he becomes governor? It says in verse 1 of uh, chapter 25, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him. So the reason, <coughs> three days into his rule, what does he do? Three days into, rule, into his rule, he goes to Jerusalem. So the very first thing on his list is to go to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders. Now he's trying to have a better relationship with the Jewish leaders than his predecessor, uh, Festus. Festus had this horrible, horrible relationship with the Jewish people, and so Felix learned, or, or uh, Festus learned from Felix's mistake. Festus says to himself, if I'm going to have a successful reign, I'm going to get along with the Jewish people. So the first thing he does in his reign is he goes from Caesarea to, uh, to Jerusalem to meet with these Jewish leaders because he wants to get along with uh, the Jewish people. So that tells you where his mind is. He knows he's got to placate, he's got to take care of these Jewish people, he's got to, he's got to get along with them. One of my favorite commercials is a commercial that uh, T-Mobile put out a few years ago, and uh, I want to show it right now. It's uh, about two water buffalo. Let's just play that real quickly, and it sort of summarizes the, uh, the, sort of, the, sort of the, the, the ministry or the government of, uh, of Festus. So let's play that real quickly. Do we really need to cross this river? Hey, you hear Metro PCS is now Metro by T-Mobile? What? Yeah, now their new plans have unlimited high-speed data all month long. No way. Way. All on the T-Mobile network. I'm thinking about switching. Well, that's smart. I'm also thinking about taking that bridge. Nice. Metro PCS is now Metro by T-Mobile. It's the smarter way to get unlimited. That's genius. So that's one of my favorite commercials. Now that commercial summarizes the government of Festus. Festus says, I'm going to take that bridge. I want to be smarter. I'm going to be smarter than Felix. So he goes to, he goes to the, uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin. He meets with them. Right away, he wants to build a good relationship with them. And if you read in chapter 25, what we'll discover about Festus is, it says that he wanted to please the Jews. 
Now the Jews wanted Paul, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, wanted uh, Paul to be transferred back to Jerusalem. And the reason they wanted uh, him to be transferred back to Jerusalem is because they wanted to assassinate Paul on the way. Can you see the predicament that Paul is in? He's in a situation where he has a governor, a new governor, who wants to placate the Jewish people. The Jewish people want Paul back in Jerusalem, not really in Jerusalem. They want him transferred so on the way they can kill Paul. So in this chapter, something very important happens in chapter 25. Paul appeals to uh, Caesar. Now, if you're a Roman citizen, you, in those days you had the... You had the uh, you had the option, if you felt like you needed to appeal to Caesar and your trial wasn't fair, you could appeal to Caesar. So he appeals to Caesar. The reason he appeals to Caesar is because he knows that he can't get a fair trial under Festus because Festus wants to send him back to Jerusalem and he knows if that happens, he's going to be killed. And so you see that dynamic taking place. So first of all, we learn a principle. First principle is is that, uh, is, is that you've got you to learn from your mistakes. We have uh, Festus that, that's being a more prudent and wise governor than Felix. And then we see this other principle. For two years, two years earlier, the Jewish people, the leaders, some of the leaders and some of the core people in Jerusalem had made a pact to kill Paul. Remember back in chapter 23, they said that... Uh, uh, 40 people came together and said, we're not going to eat, we're not going to drink until we kill Paul. And so they've had this, this, this grudge and this anger to get at Paul and to destroy Paul. And so for two years, they've maintained that hatred of the Apostle Paul. Think about that. Think about that. For two years, all they thought about was how could they get rid of the Apostle Paul? And as soon as a new governor comes along, the first thing they say to this new governor is, can you move Paul back to Jerusalem because they had in mind to kill him? So I want to just mention, uh, talk to you a bit this morning about uh, maintaining a bitter attitude towards somebody. And that's one of the big ideas in this story. One of the big ideas in this story is you have people that have perpetually hated and been angry at the Apostle Paul, and they want to kill him and destroy him more than anything. And their whole life is revolving around this uh, person that they hate and they despise and that they're angry with. You know, it's possible in your life, it's possible in my life, for us to go through a sustained period of time when we're angry at somebody, upset at somebody, and that we just hold on to our anger towards somebody. Let me ask you a question here this morning. How many have ever had anybody in your life that's really, really upset you? Just raise your hand. And uh, maybe you've gotten upset with that person. You've gotten angry with that person. And you know, here's, here's what the Word says. The Word teaches us that, that God, God gives us, He gives us one day, one day to be angry at somebody that's hurt us. You say, Pastor Danny, where do you get that calculation that you have one day to be angry at a person that has hurt you or been unkind to you? Where do you get that calculation just one day? It says this in the book of Ephesians. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not let the sun 
go down on your wrath. Would you say that with me? Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That means that you have permission to be angry for a whole day. But when it starts to get dark and the sun begins to set, you've got to get rid of your anger. You've got to get rid of your anger. If you hold on to anger, and if I hold on to anger toward anybody that's hurt us or wounded us or said something about us or some relationship that's gone south, if we hold on to that anger and we hold on to it day after day, we are actually hurting ourselves. And so that's why the Lord says to us, he said, he said in his word that don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So every night before I go to bed, I lay in bed, and I always recite the Lord's Prayer when I'm, when I'm getting ready to go to sleep. It helps me sleep. And I say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. So the last thing I do every day, I usually say the Lord's Prayer two or three times when I'm laying there uh, in, in bed trying to go to sleep. I, the last thing I do every day is I always go through, uh, forgive uh, us our debts, and I say, Lord, I know I need you to forgive me. How many, how many probably mess up at least once a day? Just raise your hand. If you mess up at least once a day, how many are probably over once a day? Just say you're probably more than once a day. So I need the Lord to forgive me every day. There's not a single day that I live that I don't have to say, Jesus, I confess my sins to you. And the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So I, I ask the Lord to forgive me my sins. And then here's what I do every day. Forgive us, forgive me, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors which have uh, sinned against us. So I have to every day, before the sun goes down, I have to say, Lord, is there anybody that I'm angry at? Is there anybody that I'm upset with? Is there anybody that I've got ill will toward? And I have to forgive them because in order for me to have a good night's rest, in order for me to wake up refreshed in the morning, I need to let go of any anger because the Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do you know uh, Tiger Woods, a great golfer, he's had some personal issues, but I think he's maybe doing better. I don't know. I don't follow Tiger Woods that much, but I know he's a great golfer and uh, didn't do so good for a while, but now he's doing a little bit better. But, you know, uh, Tiger Woods has this thing. If, he, if you ever make a bad shot, if you ever make a bad shot, and uh, how many golfers out there, you, how many have, have golfed? You know, Mark Twain says golf is a game that ruins a nice walk. You know, golf is just really... A terrible, terrible sport. It's a hard sport. It's the hardest sport I've ever tried in my life. And, and if you want to invite me out to golf, uh, I don't golf anymore. I used to golf. I don't golf anymore. So it's just really, really tough sport. But Tiger Woods has this about if he hits a bad shot. If he hits a bad shot, and even Tiger Woods hits a bad shot, and he hits, hits a bad shot, here's what he tells himself. He said, I'm going to take 10 steps into the fairway and as I get to that 10th step, I'm going to forget about the bad shot. I'm going to forget about the bad shot. 10 steps into the fairway, hit a bad shot. He gives himself 10 steps before he forgets about the bad shot. When somebody hurts you, 
somebody wounds you, somebody does something to you that makes you angry, and inside you, you've got this ill will toward that person. Maybe it's a business person. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody in your neighborhood. Maybe it's somebody in the club you belong to. Maybe it's somebody that, that, that you're related to, that you love dearly. And you have this ill will in your heart. Let me ask you a question. How many steps do you take into the future before you let that go? Here's the story here, this story. They spent two years, every day, two years, walking into the future, hating the Apostle Paul, despising him. I just read an article uh, this week from Johns Hopkins University, and they discovered... A wonderful article that says that when you forgive a person, your blood pressure goes down, your cholesterol gets in line many times, and you have this incredible capacity to, be, uh, to have less of a likely to have a heart attack. Your blood pressure goes down. All these great physical attributes affect you when you are to forgive a person. Consequently, if you're angry at somebody, you're, you're, you're releasing... Uh, you're releasing hormones into your blood system that can, can affect you. Every emotion, every emotion we have has a physical uh, manifestation that goes along with that emotion. It says in the book of Proverbs, uh, envy, envy rots the bones. So if I have a, an anger or bitter spirit in my heart towards somebody, that's physically affecting me in a negative way. And I don't know about you, I want to be strong, I want to be physically robust, I want to live a long time, I want to have a good life, I don't want to have a heart attack, I want to enjoy life. And if you're with me, say a big amen this morning. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you if you forgive the person that's hurt you. And so my question for you is, how many steps, how many steps have you taken into the future while hating somebody. The Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And it says for a full two years, a full two years, these people hated Paul and they were eat up with, with hating Paul. Somebody said that bitterness, bitterness in your heart toward another person is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Say this with me. When I hate somebody, I'm the ultimate loser. I was reading... Uh, in my devotions uh, this week in uh, Matthew 18 where uh, Jesus told the disciples to forgive their enemies because listen unforgiveness is, a, is, an, is an ancient problem it goes back for the times of Jesus the times of Paul and uh, Peter said how many times should we forgive our brother uh, that sins against us Jesus Paul, Peter said that to Jesus uh, he said uh, he said seven times because the Jewish way of thinking was four times. You forgive a person four times, then they're done. Four times. And so Peter, you know, knew Jesus was going to be benevolent about this. He said, seven times? And what did Jesus say? He said, not, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And that doesn't mean whatever that number is, 449 or whatever it is. It doesn't mean that you keep a mark every time, 449 times. It just means you get in a habit of forgiving. You have to keep forgiving people that, that, that aren't kind to you. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be best friends with them. It doesn't mean if they're, they're a toxic person, an abusive person, that you'd like just step into the line of fire and stick your hand on the anvil and let them keep hitting it. You know, you, you've got to set boundaries. It doesn't mean any of that. 
but it means it says in the book of Colossians we need to forgive our enemies from our heart and this is a universal problem let me read a couple scriptures to you about forgiveness if I can find them uh, we got a couple uh, things here that are good scriptures about forgiveness Colossians, uh, it says, Ephesians, let's read this again. Uh, say this with me in Ephesians 4.26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So you got it. You got a day. You got a day. You got a day. And then here's, here's some other ones, really good ones. Um, it says, forgive us our debts. Okay, here's, some good, here's a good one. Colossians 3, 13 through 14, Colossians 3, 13 through 14, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And Ephesians 4.31 says this, get rid of all bitterness. Say that with me. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, malice is like... You know, you can tell you've forgiven somebody by how you talk about them. Malice is what comes out of your mouth. So if you haven't forgiven somebody, you'll be saying these little uh, cynical, uh, snide remarks about them. You'll be making little jokes about them because you haven't really forgiven. That's malice that comes out of your mouth. So, uh, so that's an important principle uh, in the story that we need to think about. That's a very, very important principle that's uh, found in the story that, uh, that needs to be taken care of. So there's some other things in the story that I think are really interesting. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in the story is, uh, is that Fe uh, Festus, who wants to accommodate the Jewish people, uh, and he's prone to do what they want him to do, um, that, that he gets to listen to the Apostle Paul speak to him about Jesus and uh, on a regular basis, he has Paul come in, and Paul uh, tells, tells him about Jesus and speaks to him about Jesus, tells him about the gospel. Here's the gospel. Can you imagine, can you imagine the opportunity that he has that he gets to hear Paul speak about Jesus on a regular basis? But we know something about Festus that he doesn't know. We know something about him that he's completely unaware. Paul was standing in front of him. Festus becomes the uh, governor, we believe, around 60 A.D. But what he doesn't know is he just has two years to live. Two years to live. And while Paul is in front of him, uh, rehearsing the gospel, telling the gospel to him, he doesn't know that he's just months away from stepping into eternity. I don't know what went wrong. I don't know what kind of disease he had, but we know that we know from history that this guy, Festus, died two years later after he met Paul. So that meant that he had a limited window of opportunity to hear about Jesus and to put his faith in Jesus and become a follower of Jesus. Here's what I believe. I believe that every single one of us is given an opportunity 
to accept Jesus, to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that, that opportunity, that window of time where the grace of God is there, that window of time while you are here in this church and you're hearing about Jesus, that window of time of embracing Jesus and becoming a follower of Jesus is not something that lasts forever, but it's a, it's a moment. It's a moment in our history where we have the opportunity to receive Jesus, to become a Christian and follow Jesus. So he doesn't know it. He doesn't know that he's going to die. He doesn't know that he's going to die in two years. He doesn't know that while he's listening to Paul, he thinks he's got this long career in front of him, but he's going to die in office at 62 AD. And I'm here to tell you this morning that just the way uh, when Noah went into the ark and uh, God got that ark, helped Noah prepare that ark. It was a picture of salvation, a picture of God's grace to provide us and protect us from God's judgment. That ark that was before uh, Noah, it was, it was actually a vehicle to deliver Noah and, and anybody in his generation from the judgment of God. Here's what it says. Listen to this. Here's an unusual verse of scripture that we haven't heard re recently. Hebrews 9.27. Hebrews 9.27 says this, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Now here's the deal. This is not a very elevated uh, part of this message, but let me just, let me break this to you. That this, the, the data is in uh, one out of one people die. I mean, everybody dies. There's nobody going to escape that. But the Bible says this. Here's what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 9.27 Appointed unto man once to die. Say that with me. Appointed unto man once to die. Now that word appointed, I think it's really interesting. I have not figured this out yet. Uh, Karen and I have this, this theological debate all the time. She says, I think there's a day that you're going to die and that's the day. It's on the calendar and that's when you're going to die. And I, I say, you know, if that's true, you know, we have this little debate, and I'm not sure if she's right or I'm right. I don't know. I said, if that's true, then I can just eat as much Doritos and, as I want to, you know? That's what I'm thinking. If there is a day, and it doesn't matter what I do with my diet, I'm going for the Doritos, can you say a big amen? That's me. But she says that, and she could be right about that. She could be right about that. But um, I, think it may be, I think maybe the point is it's, that death is inevitable, but what's the thing that happens right after death? It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, and then the judgment. Say it with me. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Now, I just preached the book, and here's what the book says. The book says that when we leave this world, we're accountable to a holy God, a God who right this moment in his presence, these creatures are saying, holy, 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 24 hours a day. They're crying out how holy and how pure and how righteous and how grand this God is. There's nothing more pure in the universe than our God. And a sinful person like you and me is going to be cast into the presence of a holy God. And unless we have embraced Jesus as our Lord, Jesus took our judgment, he took our, he took our penalty, and because I've embraced and I believe in Jesus, what happened to Jesus on the cross is what should have happened to me because I'm a sinner, 
my Methodist pastor, Chuck Donovan, when I was growing up, he said if, you, if they could really paint a picture of what Jesus looked like on the cross, you couldn't look at it. He was beaten. He was, he was abused. He, he was a bloody pulp. He took my judgment so that I could be free of judgment. So this man, this man, Festus, is standing in the last season of his life and he doesn't know it. And he says, Paul in front of him, telling him about Jesus. Telling him about Jesus. So what I'm here to say to you this morning is, if you aren't a Christian, if you aren't a Christian today, I wouldn't wait one more second to become a Christian. I would become a Christian today. I'd say, Jesus, come into my life. This is your your opportunity because you don't know what the future holds for you and what the Lord has for you. So it's there. Uh, That's part of the story. Last thing I want to say about this story, I have one minute left. Last thing I have to say about this story is, is, uh, is, is I thought about Paul being in limbo. Paul, is, Paul, has, been in, uh, Paul has been in this, uh, this jail in Caesarea for two years. And he wants to go to Rome. And he's got all these dreams to go to Spain. And for two years, he seems to be stuck in one place. And I wonder about that. I wonder what that was like for him to be stuck in that one place. And I wonder if he got a little antsy and wondered what God was up to. But we know that God was at work in Paul's life in this period of limbo. Uh, For two years he was there. We know, for one thing, we know in chapter 26 of Acts that this king called Agrippa, who came to visit Festus to kind of connect with the new, the new governor, this, this uh, king that came, that the king wanted to hear Paul preach, and he preached before, Paul preached before a king. And you know what it says in Acts 9.15 when Paul got converted, when Ananias came and prayed over him? Acts 9.15 says, the Spirit of the Lord is going to send you to the Gentiles, and you'll preach before kings. So while Paul seems like he's stuck, he's actually fulfilling the destiny God has for him. Some scholars believe that the prison epistles were written during this time, that Paul was writing the prison epistles. So here's the deal. If you feel like you are in a place where you can't control where you are and you wish you weren't where you were, maybe you're in between jobs, maybe you're in limbo, remember this, behind what you can't control is a God who is in control. Say that with me. Behind what you can't control is a God who is in control. So God is working in Paul's life. God is working in Paul's life. He's doing incredible things in Paul. Corey Timpoon, who was a great, uh, she was a prisoner of war in uh, World War II and put in a prison camp. She used to give these talks. Uh, she was a, a Dutch woman who her and her family uh, gave shelter to the Jewish people in Holland that were, that were fleeing from the Nazis, and they eventually got caught, and they were put in a prison camp. But she used to give these, these talks, and she was in prison camp for I don't know how long uh, Corey Timpin was in prison camp. She used to give these talks, and she said, that, you know, when you're, when you're in limbo, 
it feels like your life is in chaos. And she said it's like an embroidery, and she uh, has this embroidery that she would put the back side of the embroidery. We'll put that picture up there if you got that. This is, she said, if you've ever done embroidery work or stitching, she said, it just looks like chaos on the back side of that embroidery. And she said, sometimes our life looks like that. Looks like we're not where we're supposed to be, that everything is in limbo, and everything is all messed up. But Corey Tim Boone said, if you turn this over, you see that God is making a crown. He's doing something special in your life, even when it looks like your life is filled with chaos. That's why it says where Paul could write, and we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. And if you're in limbo, there is no limbo that Jesus is not Lord of. There is no limbo that Jesus is not Lord of. And if you'll look closely at where you are, you will see the hand of God making something beautiful. God is always in charge of our life. And he's always the Lord of our life. And Paul, sitting in Caesarea, maybe with his chin in his hand, waiting for the next thing. Well, all the time, God was working and doing great things in his life. Would you lift your hands with me this morning? I want you to know that you're not in limbo. You're not in a place of failure. You're not in a place of mistake. God is with you. You are not in limbo. It's a lie from the devil. The Lord is Lord of your life. He's sovereign of your life. If your life looks like chaos right now, you're looking at the wrong side of the embroidery because God is doing something special in you. You're called by Him. You're ordained by Him. You're predestined by Him. You're a son and daughter of the living God. And because you are a son and daughter of the living God, there are no mistakes in your life. He is doing His work in your life, and He's doing incredible things. And will you just say this with me this morning? Lord God, I thank You that You're Lord of every season, of every place of my life, and you're making something beautiful in my life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. If you love the Lord, say a big amen. Praise the Lord.